Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tarod, and today I'm excited to be speaking with my friend and trusted guide, Kat Courtney. Kat has many years of training and experience facilitating plant medicine ceremonies, specifically with ayahuasca and wachuma. These are both drinks prepared from plants which have been used for thousands of years among the indigenous tribes of South America. Kat is the founder of Afterlife Coaching, which provides preparation and integration support for such ceremonies, as well as spiritual life coaching in general. Check out her excellent blog and website at www.afterlife.coach. That's also where you can book a coaching session with Kat, which I highly recommend. She also offers live online classes with the Plant Medicine Mystery School. For the past couple years, Kat has been writing a trilogy of books, and the first one is coming out very soon. We talk about that near the end of the interview. So without further ado, here's Kat Courtney. Hello. Hey, Kat. How are you? Good. Well, I was thinking back to when I first became interested in psychedelics or when they first crossed my radar. Back in 2006 is when I first started studying the world's religions. And I went out and got the book by Houston Smith, The World's Religions. And then from there, got into Joseph Campbell and reading his books. And I didn't even realize I was reading about psychedelics at the time. I was thought I was learning about the origins of world religions and how all of the sacred texts and insights begin with ecstatic experiences, what we would call altered consciousness. And the role of the shaman was central. What do you have to say about the role of the shaman in history and then today as well? We're starting with the big guns. Beautiful question. (laughs) It all depends. You know, shaman is such a loaded mystical word even like we use it and we don't even necessarily know what we mean by it Mm -hmm. so let me first say what I mean by it one of the many definitions of it is that a shaman is one who sees in the dark and is a bridge walker in between the tangible and the intangible world I see the role of the shaman as the beings that haven't forgotten our mystical nature, all of us, right? All of our spiritual beings uh, have this memory of being bigger than we are as humans. And the shaman holds the role in the culture to be the reminder of that. And quite often, as you are, are highlighting, they do that through the usage of plant medicines the aspects of nature that haven't let us forget who we are as spiritual beings. So the role of the shaman in history and still today is to be that bridge between the mundane and the magical or the physical and the spiritual. And they've existed in every culture all around the globe for as long as we have recorded history. So there's something to that, right? (laughs) And the word is actually Russian isn't it? Siberian, yes. But it's been embraced worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Being a part of something that has that level of global history is kind of mind-blowing to me. Uh, That's why that word, I don't even call myself that because it's so sacred. It's so big that I don't even know how to fully define it, let alone embody it. But it's a great question. 
Yeah, I was going to ask if you feel comfortable embracing that label for yourself or if it's more something other people call you. The latter. I like the facilitator word. I'm a facilitator or a guide, or in particular, I like to reference the medicines I work with. So an ayahuasca or a wachumera, because that's direct and clear and doesn't have that sort of loaded energy. But, you know, it's an honor when others reflect that to me. And probably, unfortunately, the most famous shaman in the world right now might, might be the QAnon shaman. <laughs> Ah, yes. <laughs> you know, that's another reason why I don't like that word is so many people these days are stepping up to take it on and they have no concept of the sacredness of it. And it's getting tainted. Yeah. Um, no offense to the QAnon shaman. From what I've read, he seems to have taken mushrooms a few times and proclaimed himself a shaman. So how would you describe the training involved with becoming an actual shaman? <laughs> it's hard to describe because it's experiential. So in the eight years that I worked with my primary teacher, honestly, Sam, he said very little to me. You know, it, he didn't answer my questions. It was like, we'll talk to the medicine and here, we'll take it to ceremony. It was just, it's, it's training in an energetic sense. It's an internship, you know, like people in the medical world go through, it's hands-on. But it's so, I mean, it's a mystical, magical world of working with energy. So I learned by doing through experience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is very hard to articulate because it's not for the mental sort of dualistic space to totally understand. So the training takes place within the psychedelic space, calling on the teachers within you and in the plants. Exactly. You know, in the tradition I studied, it's a minimum of seven years and hundreds of ceremonies with ayahuasca before you can pour a single cup of medicine. A minimum of seven years, it took me 10, because it's all experiential in that way of learning through partnership with the spirits of the plants and then your energy guides, your spirit partners, your ancestors, your relationships you have with animal totems. I mean, all of that has to be developed and nobody can tell you how to do that. That's not something somebody lectures to you about. Yeah, it is fascinating how those things go back to the beginning of human history. When you said animal totems, that reminds me of the cave paintings of animal totems from hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's another important role of the shaman, I think what you just mentioned, is maintaining the conscious relationship with nature and all aspects of her the animals and the plant spirits and because especially in our culture and our world now we are so disconnected mm -hmm. so profoundly not conscious of our relationship with all aspects of nature so the shaman the relationship a shaman has with nature is pivotal to being a bridge walker and so they remind us of that too and we need that right now speaking of animals spirits plant spirits I'm imagining some people might be freaked out by that idea or thinking, what is this? But it was reminding me of the term animism, I think is the word for the ancient religion of the indigenous people. And really this was the worldwide belief for uh, thousands and thousands of years of experiencing spirits in all things in all nature and ourselves. Totally, yeah. This was not new. 
we just kind of, we went so far in the other direction in our current culture that we're, we're so connected with individuality and, and the idea of tangible success, materialism and capitalism and all of that. What I see happening now is such an amazing renaissance because we can have it all. We don't have to give up a relationship with innovation and you know the physical world in order to go back to the memory of being connected to nature. So yeah, we've kind of gone too far in one direction, but the awakening that's happening now is how to merge and be really all in to both the spirit world and the physical world. I mean, we're here in a body. We might as well crack that code and enjoy both sides of what it is to be conscious. And for me, the next piece after studying world religions and getting introduced to this idea of the ecstatic experiences and giving birth to myths and sacred texts, the next thing I started coming across documentaries about plant medicines, psychedelics, and ayahuasca around 2014 or so. And I had suffered depression for a long while. Watching these documentaries made me just desperate to try that because I saw stories of people who were healing trauma and depression through plant medicines. Is that what drew you in or? To be perfectly honest, Sam, when I followed my then boyfriend to the jungle to drink ayahuasca the first time, I thought I was having another uh, fun times on drugs experience. (laughs) That's the truth of it. I had no idea what I was getting into because there wasn't a whole lot of information in the early 2000s about these medicines that was readily available. He had said the word ayahuasca, you want to go to the jungle? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's do it. (laughs) When I got there, all of my, I had a lot of self-hatred, anxiety, I had attempted suicide, bulimia, alcoholism, all kinds of stuff that came right to the surface. And I knew before I drank the medicine, uh uh-oh, this is not fun times on drugs. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in for the opposite. And I would have run away had I not been in the jungle. There wasn't an Uber to call, you know. <laughs> and, and I got lucky. I landed in really good hands with, with an amazing gentleman who became like a father to me. And he was like, you're perfect for this. Hang in there. So I didn't know. That's the truth of it. My soul must have known something I didn't and got me, got me to commit in a way that I felt duped in the most divine way. Hmm. Well, I hadn't had any drug, rarely drank alcohol, no altered experiences, and then decided to jump right in with ayahuasca purely because of the therapeutic aspect, like what I had heard about with the helping with depression and anxiety. So in, I think it was the beginning of 2018, I was able to travel to Costa Rica on a retreat, and that's where I met you. And it was a a life-changing experience in many ways introducing me to my inner teacher, really, an experience of my soul and the therapist within, bringing that to the surface and learning so many lessons. The retreat had a lot of ups and downs, and I certainly needed to call you for help (laughs) when things got too intense. Totally normal. (laughs) Yeah. If it's not a roller coaster, then I don't think we're fully conscious of what's happening because there's always, I mean, when we expand, we go in both directions. We get to expand more into, of course, illumination and light and love and the yumminess, but we expand deeper into the awareness of the dark things we're carrying too. So that's tricky work. And most of us need help making sense of it all, feeling safe again and integrating it. That's one of my most passionate aspects of this work is the aftermath 
what happens in the ceremony and the retreat is, I mean, it's important, but really what you do with it is what makes or breaks how it impacts your life. It's difficult to describe the psychedelic space or what happens in the expanded consciousness state because it's so difficult to translate one state of consciousness into another. So how would you describe the psychedelic space? Honestly, it's different given which plant medicine psychedelic space that you're working with, because especially with plant medicines versus synthetics, they have a consciousness, like a personality that is very integral to the experience too. Uh, and, I, and I like to describe them as, as superheroes that have different superpowers. Mm. Now, the psychedelic experience is always an altered space that is expansive in some way. But you can work with something like ketamine, a synthetic, that its signature is complete disassociation, which is an amazing experience if you've not had the opportunity to really kick out and look at yourself in the big picture view, mm. right? But then like the reverse of that in some ways is a medicine like ayahuasca, who, although she can go super cosmic, is going to take you deeper into who you are. And so that's expansive, but in a wholly different way, expansive into our own personal psyches and getting to access corners of our beingness that have otherwise been dark. So it's always like having your, your brain thrown into a blender and a whole new perspective brought in, but the flavor of it and the way that it manifests is very different uh, given you know, the type of medicine that we're working with. Mm -hmm. I know some people have a lot of spectacular visuals, seeing sacred geometry and such. I haven't had so much of that. I think the main thing for me is bringing up memories. Like on that first retreat with you, there were a couple of memories, things that would have never come up in years of therapy, probably. <laughs> um, things that would seem insignificant, but they came up as powerful things that were blocking me inside from feeling happy. That these uh, experiences I had buried down. And uh, yeah, so these memories were unlocked and came to the surface. And first, there was definitely a feeling of, oh no, I don't want to think about that. And there's almost the reliving of the experience or experiencing the emotions all over again and even turning up the dial a few notches. So if it, if it was a memory that brought up fear, it's experiencing the most intense fear ever and then having to process that and work through it. And then once I would work through it, then there's an, an intense joy and bliss that comes from that. Yeah. And that's a signature of the medicine you were working with, ayahuasca in particular, is going into the psyche. She loves taking us into the early childhood, even back to being in the womb of what was implanted in us energetically when we were little sponges that we maybe aren't consciously aware that we've been carrying. I mean, I know that she's helped me unravel the fact that my mom was pretty unhappy when she was pregnant with me, her world was really chaotic. And even though we can't consciously remember experiences like that, they are so embedded in us. And a medicine like ayahuasca can go back and bring in maybe not a uh, tangible memory as much as a felt memory. Like, oh, yes, right? It's this deep feeling of this is where this came from. And it's really profound to get to have the full experience of feeling and releasing that. Profound and also profoundly difficult 
depending on the experience, it's like, wow, so intense, but so freeing to, um, to allow ourselves to alchemize these experiences of trauma that we weren't able to because we were so young, so tiny as a consciousness. That's magical. Yeah. I had that too, where I felt that I was going back to being a baby, like you're saying, and felt that I had had so much fear even from that young age, and then got the message that I didn't really need to be afraid, or there was nothing to be afraid of. I was being taken care of, and yeah, learning that lesson, that life is unfolding even now. Life is happening. My life is unfolding, and I can either be afraid, or I can accept it and enjoy the ride. And that's a yeah, big lesson to learn. And I feel that's integral to all the medicines in different ways, is trusting the flow of our lives, trusting that even though there are so many curveballs and it's a wild world out there, that it's not designed to torture us, it's designed to strengthen and expand us. And this is what we signed up for. So what you just described is so completely foundational to the work I experienced from psychedelics is how do you want to choose to relate to what's happening? You want to trust it and say, yes, okay, this is crazy, but I'm learning from this. I'm expanding and healing. Or do you want to be in fear and resist it and fight it, which sucks, but that's available, <laughs> right? That's where I think free will really is defined is we get to choose how we relate to our lives. But it doesn't feel like free will if we don't yet know we have access to that. And that's what psychedelics can give us is this experiential in the moment recognition of, oh, if I say yes to this, it opens up, it's expansive, it's still intense, but it's not so scary and difficult. But if I fight it and I'm resisting and I'm saying, no, I hate this, it's horrible. But how powerful we are to, to decide how we want to relate to, to that energy. Yeah. In one of my ceremonies, I, I learned that hell and heaven really are states of mind, and hell is created by fear. And I felt like I was stuck in hell for a long time. It felt like an eternity. And one of the helpers came over and said, it sounds like you need to work on loving your inner child. And that statement was like a life raft. And when I clung to that and focused on loving my inner child, then I broke into a space of love and then suddenly everything was heaven. A moment can shift that takes us from hell to heaven. My first teacher that took care of me in the jungle that first time I got there would say that is hell is just a state of mind. So if that's where you're at, where do you want to go and how do you get there? And to always remember that we have that power, you know, we're not being tortured. I like the Buddhist expression that pain is guaranteed, but suffering is optional. So we always have a choice to relate to things that doesn't create more suffering. But it's the simple way of saying, yes, I accept this, I trust this. It's not so simple when things are so intense and scary and painful and all of our emotions are flowing and you know we're revisiting our personal definition of hell, which the medicines know what that might be <laughs> and have an amazing way of creating that for us so that we can walk through hell with a smile on our faces and it's not hell anymore. It seems that emotions are really the key or it's a realm of emotions and the volume is turned up on them. 
you know, in this waking consciousness, day-to-day life, emotions seem like a smaller part, but in that healing space, the medicine space, emotions are everything. 100%. And there's another way in which we've kind of become disconnected is we've lost the sacredness of emotions, which you can see the etymology of the word, it's energy in motion. And yet for most of us, though we were programmed anyway, is to just shut down. And I continue to be awestruck by the degree to which we are distracted from our emotions in our culture. I mean, if you start paying attention in your daily life to all the things that are there to bring you out of being conscious of what you're feeling, from food to sex to media to every conceivable way that we check out. And even we use plant medicines sometimes to check out too, like marijuana. She'll honor that absolutely all day long until we wake up and say, you know what, this sucks. Actually, I'm not healing. I'm not learning. Because if that energy isn't in motion, it's stuck in us. And I have learned from this process that's precisely how we create disease is by not feeling the energy that wants to flow through us. So that is like one of the biggest lessons right now for our culture is it doesn't serve us to ignore our emotions. We all got them. And speaking of the energy flowing, that's another way I would describe this psychedelic space is that I experience my body as energy, everything around me as energy, actually experiencing the truth of quantum physics which says that all matter is made of energy vibrating at a high speed. To actually feel and experience that is really something. I remember one time you were singing a song and I saw the song as a spiral of multicolored light coming out from you and then that spiral passing through my body, which was an amazing but very intense experience. Those songs. It sounds incredible, but uh, it wasn't so fun at the time. It was more, whoa, this, this is intense, but also beautiful at the same time. It can be so overwhelming to be this little body that is trying to handle and integrate that intensity of being connected to all that is. No big deal. Yeah, it is. You know, I find honestly, Sam, that the moments in these uh, psychedelic spaces that are the hardest to handle, to stay grounded with, are the most intensely beautiful moments. When quantum physics doesn't become an intellectual thought, becomes my actual experience of, oh, I'm connected to all that is. Yeah, my little mind just like short circuits. And that is quite often what I personally fight the most. It's not the darkness. It's the power of our omnipotence, our birthright to be aware of how eternal and connected we are. It's a lot to handle. Yeah. And in that state, messages will pop up as a knowing or a complete thought will often come into my mind, like something about forgiving others, for instance. In my last ceremony with you, I went back to a memory of being bullied in junior high and high school and saw that the kids who were bullying me, that you know, it wasn't intentional on, on their part. I, was, I felt like I understood them and had a feeling of total forgiveness. Yeah, once I had worked through that and processed it, I felt nothing but love and forgiveness for them. And it was this amazing, blissful feeling It's interesting to me how there there seems to be this innate wisdom within us that teaches lessons of love and forgiveness 
does that seem to be a universal human thing or do some people go deep inside themselves and come up with messages of hate and discord? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I mean, it's a great question because no, I've, I've never experienced it that way, but you know, sometimes people aren't ready for forgiveness and I'm a champion of that too. You know, like some people have gone through the process with Aya usually early on of acknowledging trauma and people that have hurt them and being like, I don't want to forgive them yet. Like, okay. You know, sometimes we we own that it's not, it's, it's just not time. But I think the optimum word that you used is deep. The deeper we go, the more connected we go, the more this becomes, I think, really obvious of, oh, if I'm not forgiving somebody, that poison is in me. They're not getting hurt by it. I am. And there is a point at which most of us wake up to that and say, I'm, I'm ready now to forget. But there's a maturity with it that just it's kind of mysterious as to when we access that awareness when it's time to let go. Yeah. It reminds me that a lot of people in churches or different groups are told to forgive someone who's hurt them. They say, you know, you need to forgive them. Just decide to do it. But they haven't had an experience of really reconciling with them. They're just expected to force themselves to forgive. And that can be another instance of abuse, or it can be abusive to tell someone to forgive the person who's hurt them. I, I so resonate with that. Yes, this forced will of the mind sometimes of you need to do this. If it's not genuine within us yet, again, not deeply felt, then we're lying to ourselves and that never feels good. One of the expressions that ayahuasca uses with me sometimes is is to remind us that waiting is a verb. (laughs) It's something that we do because quite often, and I'll speak for myself in the spiritual process, these truths come in of, oh, forgiveness. I'm just supposed to forgive people. I should do that now. And trying to force it, as you're describing, is, is actually adding to the pain. And so she likes to remind me, it's like, it's a process that you're all in down here. It's okay. If you're not yet in a place of, I forgive my rapist. That's okay. No, to just to be honest with where are we at in our process, in our journey. And that integrity to me is more important than trying to force some spiritual principle that sounds good on paper. Like I'm not ready. Well, that's okay. There's so many phrases I've heard either growing up at church or in the spiritual world that just seem like hollow statements or trite statements, whether it's, God is love, or everything is energy, or forgive those who hurt you. But in the psychedelic space, I've had experiences of those things where what seemed like a trite phrase, once once it's emotionally deeply experienced, then it's, ah, it makes sense. Now I understand what that phrase means. It's another one of the superpowers of that altered space is to take all of our intellectual ideas and embody them. You know, for me, it feels like sometimes each cell starts to illuminate with these truths. So for the example of forgiveness and the sacredness of that, sure, that mentally makes total sense. But when I'm with a a psychedelic, I can find the places where I haven't been able to embody that yet, where I'm holding on to the poison of anger, etc., and experientially illuminate that. It's like the difference between intellectual intelligence and wisdom. To me, the wisdom is embodied. It's deep within us. 
And the psychedelic space helps us to access that in that experiential way. We're not just thinking about it, we're feeling it, we're vibrating in it. And even the phrases like plant spirits or what we were talking about earlier with seeing spirits and different things. In this waking consciousness, me talking to you right now, it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> or it seems, well, that's a far out spiritual idea. But within the expanded consciousness state, then it makes sense. It makes so much sense that sometimes, or at least I laugh at myself for not having fully embodied it before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, this game of consciousness is really convincing sometimes and how serious and scary and like, you know, finite and all of these things. And when I'm lucky enough to really be in that very expanded space with, with a plant medicine, it's, I love the expression hidden in plain sight. Like, oh, so obvious, of course, everything's connected. Everything comes from love. But my goodness, when I'm in an ordinary state and I'm suffering, that kind of language is like, screw you, I don't want to hear it. You know, it's so, even if I believe in it, if it's not accessible, it's not true for me in that moment. But the plant medicines are the part of my life anyway that have made that accessible, that I feel it and believe it with every core of my being. And that's way better than just a mental construct. And all of these insights and benefits we're talking about Would you also say all these things can be had through other means, such as meditation, breath work, dancing, singing, chanting, things that have been done through the centuries? Yeah, you know, I classify them. There's four C's, four C's in which uh, life allows us to have these moments of expansion. Two of them we can proactively create and two of them we can't. Life just happens or we shouldn't, I should say. So the two that we that just kind of happen to us are clinical. So a near-death experience, driving a car into the wall, like, you know, something massive that allows us to have that wake up. And crisis, which we've been in as a globe for the past year, that intense pressure cooker can also, through an act of grace, allow us to have that moment of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm awake. But what we're talking about, the intentional way, the two C's are chemical, of course, taking a medicine, taking a, altering our, our consciousness, and uh, what we call cultural. Cultural is the meditation, the dancing, the chanting, the, all the, the millions of ways that we have as spiritual traditions to allow us to feel something other than our minds. So those four C's are the foundation of what allows us to expand and and have those wake up moments. And after my first ayahuasca retreat, I know I came away thinking, oh, everyone should experience this. And I've become more cautious with time, partly seeing that in my own experience, things do wear off. I returned back to normal life, genuinely not depressed the way I was before. I think it has been a lasting change. But I've also seen in our culture, people, I'd say chasing thrills, getting into psychedelics to chase the biggest experience possible. And do you see that as a problem? It sounds like with your very first experience, that's what you were after. So maybe it's not always an issue. Yeah, I was after an adventure. That's what I was after. 
So you and I have the exact opposite in terms of our histories. BA before ayahuasca is I was doing LSD and MDMA and like anything under the sun because that was my way of distracting and self-medicating. And I was doing all of that to not feel. So that I would say that, you know, if I had a subconscious intention, that would have been the same with Aya. Like, yeah, just distract me from how miserable I am. And of course she didn't do that. Bless her heart. She did the opposite. (laughs) So you know, it's, it's okay. What brings you to this place? I love being on your podcast because it's about soul. I feel like souls are the ones in charge. So my ego didn't really know what I was signing up for, but I really feel like the soul within me knew exactly what she was doing. So whatever conscious motivations, if it's fun times on drugs, that's fine. If it brings you to a place of healing, and allows this shift in awareness to happen, it's beautiful. So all intentions are welcome. Also, I'd say it's hard to find a good retreat center or shaman to recommend that someone go visit because there are a lot of problems out there. You hear a lot of nightmare stories. What do you think? Do you think it's easy to find people to recommend that people go visit for these experiences or no? Well, I think it's a bit both. Um, As usual, the squeaky wheels out there, the ones that don't have integrity as a primary motivation and that aren't safe, basically, quite often get the most attention, kind of like our QAnon shaman, you know? Uh, Extreme perspective often gets the spotlight. That's not to say that there aren't thousands of legitimate, well-meaning beautiful beings pouring medicine all across the globe. No, um, the tricky part comes in we as participants, the way that we want our shaman, our facilitator to in some ways be non-human, to be perfect. I mean, I know I did this to my teachers. I gave them a pedestal of like, oh, you must be amazing. You've done this work for so many years and, and you look deep enough into any of us. We've got shadows, we're totally human. So, For me, what I'm looking for in the people that I sit with is just that integrity and transparency of, you know, the the experience of I've been working with this medicine a long time and I trust my relationship with it. And I'm also human and I don't have it all figured out and I've got all kinds of shadow and that honesty makes me feel safe. That's kind of hard to find Mm -hmm. because quite often when you're in this role and people are calling you a shaman and they're like, oh my gosh, you changed my life. And that ego that comes with that, it's very tempting to feel like you've arrived and there's nothing more to learn and to allow that kind of um, grandiosity, but that's dangerous. So is it hard? Yeah, I would say it's hard-ish to find somebody who has that kind of transparency, but we exist out there. No. And I really believe in the, um, the expression, when the student is ready, you'll find the teacher. If the medicine's really calling and you're really ready to have an experience like I just described, there's lots of opportunities out there, more and more all the time. Hmm. This seems some people go off the deep end. I haven't seen this in person, but more people I've read about or things I've seen online. There was a guy who was making YouTube videos that were pretty solid on self-development. Then he started taking 5-MeO-DMT every week and and his commenters were saying, you know, what's happened to you? You used to be great and now you're talking like you're God. So have you seen that where people go off the deep end? 
totally. Um, I actually left the medicine world because of people going off the deep end with their big old egos. I got so frustrated with, yeah, the grandiosity of the spiritual ego. And I left for almost a year to process that and to heal that wound within me. Because I didn't, I also know that there's nothing in me that's special enough to uh, be able to avoid that, right? Like, of course, that I would have the same propensity to go down that road. And, and, and the worst case with that, to me, is actually using that to harm people, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I have one teacher who's in jail for doing that. Like, it got really ugly. So... Yeah, the deep end is always available. However, the way that the medicine has coached me is um, to keep people around me that have a license to reflect what they see in my shadow. And that feels really safe is that I'm not always self-editing, so to speak. I have a tribe of people I trust very much that um, have every right to say, hey, Kat, I think you're getting a little delusional. You know, it's your spiritual ego is taking over. Um, And because of that, I feel much safer in doing this work that I don't have to end up that way because it happens a lot. And there are some people with medical conditions or issues where they shouldn't go on an ayahuasca retreat. Are there some people you would say it's just too intense for them? I know some of the intense experiences I've had, I would be wary of recommending that to a lot of people. Yes. There is a certain stability that we need to have faith in within us in order to take something that's going to completely shift how we see reality. And so some of us, like, you know, there's some really deeply empathic people out there that are unbelievably sensitive um, that I would say, no, you don't need medicine. Like I used to live with this beautiful autistic being and I'm like, sweetheart, you're in ayahuasca like all day, every day. You don't need any, you know, to have that kind of sensitivity and be tapped in in that way. No, it's not appropriate. So there has to be some level of groundedness within us. And of course, physical strength, like heart issues and history of epilepsy, those sorts of things don't go well with the intensity of these medicines. But the vast majority of people I say yes to, even if they are really sensitive, because I can always pour gently. I can always give, you know, a smaller dose for someone that I know is deeply sensitive in order for them to have a safe experience, but to also have access. There's a lot of uh, room in the spectrum of how we can work with people and honor how sensitive or if they're a tough nut to crack that too. Hmm. Yeah. I know in the indigenous tribes, they'll even give ayahuasca to children starting at a very young age. I've sat next to an eight-year-old sitting on her grandmother's lap like a boss. I mean, the room's <laughs> lit, purging. I'm going through hell, and I'm looking at this little girl just bopping up and down to the Icaros like, yeah, this is great. Yeah, they, they, they keep their kids connected to that energy. In fact, women who are giving birth are often given a little ayah in order to imbibe the the child with that energy and to be able to surrender into the process of childbirth. So yeah, it's their sacrament for some of those tribes. Yeah. It is interesting coming from the Christian tradition and I was in the Eastern Orthodox Church for a little while, which takes the sacrament of communion very seriously, but it's not a consciousness altering drink. It's, you know, regular wine 
although some monks and mystics through the ages have had psychedelic experiences from drinking communion. But the indigenous tribes actually had a sacrament, a communion that does expand consciousness. Many of them did, right? There's so many medicines across the globe that have this component of altering our consciousness. When I first drank ayahuasca, my, uh, I was processing it on a, on a hammock by the river later on that night. And I was like, oh yeah, it feels like we implanted this consciousness in these plants to remember who we are. Like, makes total sense. Well, at least it did in that moment, right? Yeah. The aftermath on the hammock of, oh yeah, this is who we are. And of course it exists all across the globe different plants with different vibrations of that all leading back home to the heart, the memory of our, of our quantum physics reality. Yeah. It's mm. magical. Yeah. It reminds me of the new book, the immortality key. Have you seen that? Mm. I think the author is Brian Muraresco. He researches and gives evidence that the original Christian communion was a psychedelic spiked wine, but that this was stamped out over time. Presumably, they didn't want the congregants having their own mystical experiences and perhaps coming up with their own messages from God. They wanted them to, to stick with what was written down. Yeah. I mean, there's such a big difference between spirituality and religion. You know, the dogma that man, men and women have written and created from these um, mystical experiences in order to control in order to basically have their own agenda realized. But with every major religion, there's an esoteric version of it, right? Mm -hmm. That still holds on to the stories and the truths of all of us having this birthright. And growing up Catholic, I didn't learn about the Gnostics until I was like in my late 20s, early 30s, mm -hmm. which is of course the esoteric version of Christianity. That's crazy that that was even kept and hidden, but that's the nature of it because it doesn't serve the structure of the church for everyone to think that they too could cut out the middleman and connect with God and, and have their own experience. So it's really fascinating how that has existed all throughout time too, the structure and the dogma and underneath that, the esoteric truth as I see it. How have your spiritual beliefs changed since being introduced to ayahuasca and starting down this path of psychedelics. How has it affected the way you see the world? Oh, goodness. Well, big question. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, in many ways, it hasn't. It's just done the thing we were talking about a bit ago in that it's allowed me to vibrate in the truth, to feel the truth of what I intellectually always thought to be true. But there's a couple of things that have definitely shifted. One is my relationship with death. And having now had the opportunity to have what we call the ego death, which I don't like that expression anymore. I much prefer soul rebirth, <laughs> emphasizing the rebirth rather than the scary kind of I'm dying part, which isn't always scary either. But my relationship with death and the truth of what I feel <laughs> is the ultimate cosmic joke. You know, the thing that we are most afraid of is actually the thing that consciousness has created that expresses the deepest love for each of us, the homecoming. And because I've experientially got to have that now, there's just no mental argument in my own beingness around how beautiful and sacred that process is. 
it's alienated me a bit from, you know, my religious family members that just think I'm kooky because I'm studying to be a death doula. And I'm like, yes, it's beautiful. It's amazing because they're just not in that place. But that has become really tangible. And then the other piece, and it's related, is the trust that I have in consciousness in all of us that we are evolving. And in no time has that been more tested than in the last year with COVID and all of the craziness. I mean, many people have felt like going to hell. This is hell. And because of the plant medicine experiences I've had, I trust completely that this is what our expansion and evolution looks like. It's not pretty. And I don't belittle the suffering that people go through, myself included sometimes. But that trust is unwavering now. And it wasn't that way before. Maybe I had moments of it, but sometimes I felt like maybe we are just being tortured. (laughs) Now it's unequivocally clear to me that this is evolution and that it's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah, talking about death and how your beliefs have changed, it reminded me growing up, I often heard that death is the last enemy to be conquered by God. And it's a view of death as something alien from human experience and the way things were meant to be. There's the idea that, well, Adam and Eve ate the apple and that brought death into the world. Where once you learn about evolution, in fact, humans wouldn't have evolved if there wasn't billions of years of death preceding that. All the creatures that had to live and die in order for humans to arise even. And I know your website is is the afterlife.coach and you talked about becoming a death doula. So if you could say some more about death, yeah, it's very interesting how you have a different perspective than most. Yeah, I mean, it's the topic, maybe even more than plant medicine that I love to talk about most because of the illusion of fear and just the, like the expression that you use that this is the enemy that we're fighting. Um, I view death as, as my BFF, <laughs> as truly, because one of the ways in which it's very obvious to me how special it is that we get to have the experience of transitioning is if we didn't have some belief that this experience we're having now is finite, that it has an ending. If we really knew that we were eternal beings and that we have all the time in the multiverse to figure all this out, would we have a monochrome of motivation to do (laughs) any work whatsoever? No, like it's hard enough to generate that for some of us. And and that's why quite often when people get diagnosed as terminal, they describe those last months as the best of their lives because they're now fully aware that this particular part of our journey is finite and that makes it sacred. Death creates sacredness. That's the way that I view it is because feeling into the ending, which is just a new beginning, but it's still an ending, means that we are given the opportunity to be very conscious and grateful for everything that we have. Everything is finite. Every relationship, every object, everything is finite. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, including a psychedelic journey that sometimes feel like it can be eternal. It's not. So because of that, death is our best friend. It's this aspect of our journey that allows us to really be conscious and hold things as sacred. And then the experiences that I've had of what it is, first of all, I had a near-death experience when I was 20, 21 years old. I stopped breathing from an asthma attack. 
And I got to have the stereotypical experience of going towards the light, going through a tunnel, looking down at my body. I didn't want to come back, by the way. Hmm. I was instructed to. I was like, no, I'm good. This is great up here. But I, I wasn't done here, So, uh, which I'm grateful for. Then, of course, with the plant medicines, getting to have that experience of being conscious without a body, knowing that we all get to go home, that it is just a transition. It is not the ending that we're afraid of, nor is there two destinations, heaven or hell, that, that some judging God is going to decide where we land. We're, we get to take our consciousness with us. And as we were saying, heaven and hell is a state of consciousness. So we're in control of where it is that, or how it is that we relate to things with or without a body. But I know that unequivocally now. There's nothing in me that is doubtful or afraid of what if it's an ending? What if it's all of these things? Like, I feel very complete and grateful for that. I've had that thought that a lifetime without death at the end, it would be like a baseball game without an ending, just going on forever. All statistics would be meaningless. So it's really having the end point is what gives anything its meaning. It's kind of like at the end of every day, we lay down and go to sleep and regenerate. So death is that for a lifetime. It's the time to lay down, take a time out. I mean, I don't know about you, Sam, but I can't do this whole earth school thing forever. Yeah. Like, I'm going to need a time out. It's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, I don't want to live forever here. I want a time out and then come back and then sleep and then come back just like we do in our daily cycle. Have your experiences with psychedelics, has that made you believe in reincarnation? I wouldn't even call it a belief. It's a felt memory. It's like a very obvious truth now. I have had memories of experiences that I've not had in this lifetime, and they feel exactly the same as memories that I've had in this lifetime. So I no longer differentiate between those. Those are soul memories to me. It's like, oh, I've had some other adventures, a lot of them actually. And yet it's very clear to me the wisdom of consciousness to keep most of that from us. Because again, it goes back to our discussion of how overwhelming it is to be conscious of everything. So to remember, I mean, I don't remember every moment of this life, let alone like a gazillion soul lives that I've had. It's a lot. So it's really amazing how consciousness has set this up that we have very selective memories because it's a lot to embody and to handle. But yes, without a doubt, I've had other journeys, not just this one now. It does seem like it would be overwhelming if we remembered past lives. So assuming reincarnation is true, it's a blessing that those memories are wiped out when we're born into a new body. Well, here is my very logical explanation of why it's obvious to me reincarnation is a thing. Is if we hold like Buddha consciousness or Christ consciousness as the highest level that a human being can attain while in a body, I'm going to need more than 80 years to work <laughs> Because yeah. I'm doing great with my plant medicine. I got a long way to go. And that's beautiful. No judgment in there. So it's very obvious to me that it, 80 years in earth school is not enough to unravel the kind of incredible consciousness that our prophets have, at least from what we can tell, and I believe fully, have created, have accomplished. So I'm going to need more time. 
And luckily, <laughs> I think it's available. <laughs> yeah. Have you had that experience of being with people as they're dying? I have, yeah. Uh, it's my favorite, actually. Uh, whether, by the way, it's in a psychedelic experience and it's an ego death, or whether it's actually the physical transition. I can think of nothing more sacred than to get to hold somebody's hand as they leave their body. It's why I'm getting officially certified as a death doula so that I get to, to be a part of that more. It's the epitome of agony and ecstasy, you know? Mm. And, and I love that. There's nothing more honest than that moment. Yeah. I have not had that experience and it seems pretty intimidating to me. I know I'm going to be there someday, but I'm not necessarily looking forward to it. If you lean into it now and give yourself the opportunity to look at it more, not just like with somebody who's transitioning on their deathbed, but in nature, what do we often do as our flowers are dying? Shove them in a trash can and push it away. Like there's death all around us. And if we lean in and take that in and unravel the mystery of what we're seeing, rather than just going off the, oh, it's dead, but really feel into what is happening there. Um, my view is when it's our turn, that can be so much more graceful. One of my favorite books is the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is all about that, learning to die before we die so that we can be as conscious as possible when it's our turn to transition and not fight, not resist, but to be in the sacredness of it. Well, tell me about your book, The Plant Medicine Mystery School, and what's in it and when it's coming out. Thank you for asking. We're doing the cover art right now. So I would guess six weeks away, um, something like that from it being in print. So this is volume one. It's going to be a multi-volume uh, experience that I'm downloading and writing. Volume one is called um, The Psychedelic Plants and Their Superhero Powers. So it takes each of the major entheogens and really breaks down what their challenges are, what their superpowers are, the archetypes, astrological references. Like I really kind of took them as superheroes and tried to spell out what, what it, who they are as conscious entities. There's a lot of amazing books out there that break down the chemical process of what happens from a scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. I took on the task of trying to give language to the spiritual perspectives and treating these plants as the conscious beings that they are. And there's also a little bit in there about, you know, safe journeying and how to find people that are doing this work with integrity, how to keep yourself safe if you're called to this work. That's great. Well, I know it'll be very valuable to people. You're certainly the guide I trust the most. So I'm looking forward to that book. Thank you so, so much. It means a lot. Well, Kat, thanks so much. Sam, such an honor. Thank you for having me. So this was a beautiful conversation. Thanks for listening to Living from the Soul. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and review. This is an ad-free podcast brought to you by my books, which are available at samtarode.com. The theme music was created by Gideon Tarode.